0: Expectations are a funny thing, aren't they? If you're expecting a certain day to go a certain way, and it doesn't, then that can be disappointing, or fantastic. If the expectation are that things are gonna go horribly wrong, that things are gonna go terrible, and they don't, that's sort of lovely. What if the thing right now that you're dreading, that you're worried about, turns out okay? What if it all ends All right. What if it's even better than all right? Expectations are kind of a funny thing. I learned this because I go to movies with children. (laughs) I have shared with you in other venues, I believe, that I was tricked into going to see a, a film, not knowing what I should have expected. And the third song in, I realized that Frozen was a musical when you get to the 15-minute mark and you're on your third song, that's what you're in for. There's going to be lots of singing. Uh, Not that I'm anti-musical, it's just I didn't want to see a musical that day. But it turned out that that movie had a fantastic message. I loved it. Don't tell anyone. It's kind of embarrassing. Loved it. Know all the songs. The cold never bothered me anyway. And, And I've... I found myself, like, really invested in the characters who are drawn pictures. I know this, but I'm invested. And it turns out that the the redemptive story there is a redemptive love that's not romantic. And I love that. So often, the story that I expect when there's princesses involved is that some prince will come along on a white horse and fix everything, generally by kissing somebody. Uh, That has not been my experience of the world. But it is my experience of films uh, in this vein. And this was different. It kind of turned it on its head. It was great. And so when there was a a sequel, I didn't really want to (laughs) go. But the kids were really wanting to go. And so I sacrificed and we went. And there I knew there was going to be lots of singing. I was ready for it. It was so much easier to deal with. But in Behind the Singing, there was another message worth hearing, that the wounds of the past we tell the truth about, that the healing might come to us and to people. Pretty potent stuff. Expectations are funny. I went in ready and was looking for, hey, these folks are fairly clever. What story is behind the songs and the drawing and the color and the snow? Expectations. Set the tone of Scripture. It is the root story of Israel to expect that God would act. He did it with Moses, they would say, after the exodus in Egypt. Remember that, people. Remember he's a God who does, who acts, who is, who will not leave his people for so long in suffering. He will deliver them and hear their cry. This is what our God does, they would say. He's the God that brought us back from exile. We remember that and tell that story. And as they came back, to rebuild that which was torn down by the Babylonian invasion of Jerusalem. They remarked the temple and they heard the ancients whisper about the presence of God that dwelled in the temple. And they rebuilt it, brick upon brick, stone upon stone. Except it wasn't quite the same. It wasn't as big, it wasn't as grand. And worse, it didn't seem like God's presence dwelled there as it had in the days of Solomon and his descendants with the temple there. And so another expectation began to ripple through Israel and their hope that one day God would come and restore not only the building, but the presence. Not only the appearance, but the power. The expectation would be whispered to children as they learned to work in the fields and planted vineyards and walked behind a a row being planted with seed in the rocky soil of the Judean hill country. They would tell their children, one day. One day it's coming, expect it, look for it's coming. And it'd be hard to see because after the Babylonians there were Persians and Greeks and then Romans who controlled and had interests and oppressed and taxed and took from the people in the land. There were other powers who seemed to be king over the land, but they would whisper one day. One day the king will return. One day a king like David. 2 Samuel 7, one day a king will return and sit the throne forever. One day, son or daughter. One day it won't be like this. It won't be like this. The Romans will be dealt with. One day it won't be like this. The presence and power of God will return. Emmanuel, we just sang it. That's the hope. Isaiah 40 would be repeated over and over again. Comfort, O oh comfort, O oh Israel. My people have paid double for their sins. And it ends in that great uh, promise that even youths grow weary, but those who trust in the Lord will mount up like those who have eagle's wings. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not grow faint because God will go with them. This was the hope and expectation despite what their daily grind of life presented to them. Holding on to a hope that was hard to see was what it meant to be Israel. And into that, Matthew offers his gospel. The beginning traces the line of expectant hope back to David. Those genealogy in Matthew 1, which I know you read every year. <laughs> Reading over your children and making your Jesus Advent family tree. No one does that, by the way. If you're thinking, who does that? No one. No one does that. And then after that, we get the story of Herod, the, the imposter king. It's a story of a coming king. The imposter king sitting on the throne who is willing to kill innocents to squinch the fire of this returning kingdom before it becomes a blaze he can't control. The fleeing of Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus to Egypt. And then we get chapter 3, our text for today. In those days, those days of turmoil and unrest, of Herod's uh, killing of innocents and his own death, John the Baptist, Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea. The wilderness of Judea is in the land, part of the promise, but it is a land that doesn't have much water. In my upbringing and formational years, wilderness meant woods. It meant forests and creeks and pine needles and red dirt. I don't know what wilderness in your mind evokes, but I was startled in my first appearance in the wilderness when I got a chance to see it and stand in it. It is Flint Rock. It looks like the moon. (laughs) It is dry and barren. And yet there are places where things bloom. The desert indeed does bloom. And there the Jordan runs through it uh, to divide uh, Jericho and the Transjordan from Jerusalem up in the hill country. The Judean wilderness is the expanse. And that's where John is proclaiming, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent means to turn and go another way. At 8.15 we had one of our uh, loyal, awesome, um, blessed acolytes come forward with the offering plate. They take the offering out of it. It gets locked up in the safe and, and counted or whatever. Uh, I, in fact, the first church I served, they piled it up and carried it in. It was, it was a real unsettling moment when they brought the plates back empty. The first Sunday, I thought, this has not gone well <laughs> so far. Um, so we, we bring them back pretty empty when they come back, up, just as a sign and symbol of we're bringing our offerings to the table. But, but he took a left turn and went towards his seat instead of coming up to the altar and he uh sort of laughed and, and turned and, and came up here and put it on the table had a good sort of chuckle had a great attitude about it but to make it right he had to take a different step that's the root of a repentance to, to step towards the good and away, turning away from uh, that which brings death or disease or brokenness or pain, the hurt and harm of this journey. That's repentance. And he did. He repented of his pew uh, journey and came to the altar and had a great uh, disposition about it because he's a, uh, a person that understands some of our steps don't land where they ought, and the correction is not to get mad or feel bad, but to turn towards the place we've been called. Repent, he says, for God's invading, the king of heaven's coming near. This is the one, Matthew tells us, of whom the prophet Isaiah spoke. That's Isaiah 40, when he said, The voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. That is, the king is returning. The Lord's presence is coming. Remember, it won't always be like this. And so smooth the road out. Make the hills come down and get flat. Make the valleys come up. Make it easy to traverse because God is coming. Move the obstacles. Take away the rocks. God is on the move. Now John wore clothing of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and his food was locust and wild honey. Anytime the scripture tells us something that we don't need to know, it's very interesting. Like, John's diet is not vital to the story. We can move on without it. Also, we don't need to know what he's wearing. Why are we told this? Um, He had a camel outfit. And this is, if you're thinking, oh, he had like a camel hair blazer for the Christmas party. No. This is not a good look. Um, This is not, John is, this is like a parenthesis. Matthew wants us to know, John is not who you'd expect to be the voice proclaiming Isaiah's hope. See, our expectations polish the promise. Our expectations put the promise in fertile fields uh, with soft dirt, and and people that look the part, they not only have their Christmas cards delivered the Friday after Thanksgiving, but they look good. Their children are dressed, hair comb, and they're looking at the camera. They're magicians. They look the part. That in our mind is what it all should look like. How it should come. If God's going to show up, God's going to have the best looking, the easiest, the softest, and the most normal. Whatever normal might mean. And John doesn't fit. And he's out in the wilderness that isn't that place. It's a dry and rocky, tough land that inspires dependence upon a God who calls us through it. He wore camel hair, rough clothing, leather just cinched around it, very simple. And he ate what he could collect from the land there. John was not the person you're hoping your daughter brings home from college. John was the one that at the Thanksgiving or Christmas gathering in the parallel of the modern world, you know, the, how's John doing? The parents go, oh, he, great, we're real proud of John. More stuffing? More stuffing? So they don't really know how to deal with him. He's something else, and yet he's this voice that knows it's time to get ready because heaven is invading. The it's going to be different has begun. The one day it won't be like this has started. Then the people of Jerusalem and all Judea were going out to see him. This is not what you'd expect And all the region along the Jordan, they were baptized by him him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. That is saying, I need to be put right. Let's get ourselves ready as the paths get ready because God's coming. The king is coming. It's time to get right and look right because here it comes. The day is upon us. They're coming from Jerusalem and Judea where there are plenty of ways to get ready for God's presence. In fact, there's a temple sitting there with people running it that say, this is the place where sins are forgiven. This is the water on the walk up to the southern steps through to the temple mount where you'd get washed and clean. This is where that would happen. But John says, no, all those practices and rituals are being empty of their power, and you are not getting cleaner. In fact, you're dirtier. So I stand out here in the wilderness where you would not expect water or hope, and I have found both. But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, This, again, gives you a hint about John. This is a charming way to greet new guests at the church. You brood of vipers. I should try that as the welcoming next Sunday when y'all walk in. (laughs) Welcome to university, you brood of vipers. Who told you to flee from the wrath to come? I don't know how that would go. I'm guessing that there'd be a meeting with the staff parish committee afterwards that I'd be a part of. Then we think your new edge is a little bit too much. It's a, it's a weird note to say when they say but Pharisees and Sadducees are a part of the mechanisms of different expectations. We talk about how Jesus' parables and the metaphors of Scripture often give us imaginative therapy, that we might imagine more truth about God because of the, the therapeutic metaphors of the parables. It helps us think of God in new ways, and ourselves in relation to God in new ways. That's why Jesus tells stories. We find ourselves in them, and I, we imagine in new ways what is possible, what is true. In a sense, Advent, this season, these Sundays leading up to Christmas and the Christmas season and celebration are expectation therapy, that our expectations might be dialed in to that which God has promised and is providing, so when we show up at the show, we know there's a message there if we have ears to hear, eyes to see, ready to receive with power that promise. The expectation of the Pharisees was that moral uprightness, observance of the law, would deliver the people. It would provide an environment in which the Messiah or God's presence, however language you want to have there, would be delivered to God's people, and the one day would happen when the day of righteousness ruled the land. That's the expectation. Jesus is interested in righteousness. God's interested in observance of the law and ordinances, but not to produce salvation but instead to reflect it, to show that repentance has already taken place. The Sadducees were even more distant from the expectations of John. They ran the temple complex, were in league with the Romans, had lots of wealth and power, and John was like, what are y'all doing out here? You have your own system, why aren't you there? And if you really want to make a difference, go fix the thing that you're a part of. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit... Worthy of repentance. That is, if you want to be a part of this, put your roots in it and grow in it that you might provide fruit that proves that you actually are a part of this. Fruit proves what kind of tree you're looking at, Jesus would say. Fruit shows that the health of the tree is productive. There's seeds in fruit. It means more trees, it means sustenance for those of us that want to eat the fruit. It also means more trees, it means forests are possible. This is how creation is seeded. And he's saying, if you want to be a part of new creation, bear that fruit. Don't just come and watch the show. Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. John knows well, and so do they. Genesis 12 is this seminal passage in the uh, expectation of Israel. God calls Abram. And says, through you and your family, the whole world's going to be blessed. I've chosen you for this role. So being a child of Abraham is to be a child of that promise. And so John says, being descended of Abraham doesn't mean you understand and expect the right promise. These stones can get it better than you if you don't get in league with this invasion of hope, this invasion of heaven that has come near. Even now, the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I don't want to spoil it, but he's talking about Jesus. I am not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will be clear. He will clear his threshing floor and will gather his wheat into the granary but the shaft he will burn with unquenchable fire. Here ends the reading, the word of God for the people of God. Thanks, be to God. Thanks be to God. John the Baptist, by the way, not John the Southern Baptist, and my dad's a recovering Baptist, so you are welcome here. But John the Baptist is not often invited to Christmas. He doesn't really get included in it very often. He stars in Advent. And there is great power in allowing Advent to have some distinctive qualities from the Christmas celebration that's coming. And that is that we, in the Advent hymns, if you open up the hymnal, you'll see a lot of Israel and their hope restored talk. A lot of expectation, because this is what this season is about. And you'll see that this expectation means that there's an intensity and a passion on the part of God, and a part of heaven showing up in the world, that means there is a response. All this roadway and water and fire and fruit wheat and axe and being cut down, all this elemental talk really does fit the season if we hear the promise as one in which there are proponents that are set against it. There are forces, there are perhaps even people and agents of those who are set against this invasion of hope, this invasion of this promise that expects something else and are working diligently perhaps towards something Else, And because of that, the response reveals whether or not the tree has taken root in the expectation of this heaven come near. And so John, strangely and oddly dressed, eating not gravy and turkey, not stuffing or sweet potatoes, all of which are delicious, um, but instead locusts, which are kind of like a grasshopper, which I've had, long story, and wild honey, Eating strange food, hanging out in weird places, and he says, Wake up, see this, hear this, receive this. Do not be like these trees that are not producing the fruit God wants. Instead, be like the grain that Jesus will be looking for. That winnowing fork would be used to sift. The wheat from the chaff, that's the stuff around the grain that's not fit for making bread, you had to separate it. The grain is heavy, the chaff is light. And so you'd sift it up and the wind would take away the stuff that is uh, light. And then more would drop that was substantial, that you could make food from, that sustenance and life would come from. And John is saying, be like that, have solidness. This season of Advent, we are expecting with hope that the light will be poured into us in such a way that the darkness we see all around us will not overcome. This is the promise of John's Gospel, that there was light in John, John the Baptist, declaring that Jesus was coming, and that light was born in the flesh of Jesus, and the darkness cannot, will not, and shall not overcome this light. One of my favorite subjects Um, still to this day, but certainly in college, was physics. It was fantastic. It was finally science that made it worth learning the math that I'd learned. Maybe you've had this experience, but they were like, you know, you'll use it one day. I was like, I don't find myself finding the area under a curve very awesome often. Thank you very much, calculus teacher from high school. Maybe you do that a lot in your rocketry work. Um, I don't know. I don't use that very often. What I loved in physics is that finally some of the math I'd learned that seemed pointless now had application. And more than that, it gave insight into creation in really interesting and fascinating ways. That is, I learned that cold isn't a thing, which is weird because I feel it. It's not a thing, but I, this morning I was like, whoa, it is way colder this morning than last night. I went to bed in Texas and woke up, you know, in Utah. In August in Utah, but we don't have to get into that. Um, it felt nice. It was cooler, It was cold. But it's not because something came It's just because something was removed. Heat is the thing that can be measured and it's real. It is particles moving. We don't have to get into the physics of it, but it's all of these things. Heat exists. Cold doesn't. Cold is the absence of a thing. In much the same way, darkness is not a quality. Darkness is the absence of the light that is present to our eyes that we might see. And so in darkness, it's not that something's there, it's that something's lacking. And so in the chaff, it's not that something's there, it's that it missed the seed. It doesn't have the possibility of the power. And that's what God's about from Genesis 1 to Revelation 20. This is what God is about, the possibility and power that that might grow, the good, the beautiful, the wonderful, and the true. And that the darkness that seems before us cannot overcome the power of that light that's real, that has heat, that is substantial and solid. And so in this Advent, our desire is that we indeed would join in the journey, expecting God to show up this season, expecting that the light would be poured out upon us, and that we would recognize, as John says, there are things we confess as sins, repent from and turn away from, that we might be agents of the light. Most of the darkness that you and I experience, almost all of it, is the result of a shadow, and that shadow is cast by the earth. Right, nighttime is just an evening that happens because of the shadow. Like the sun's on the wrong side of the planet, or the right side if you happen to be in Australia at that time. And so we are on the dark side at night, not because something is there, but because the light isn't present. And so it is the thing between us and the light that we pull away when we confess sin, that we move from the pathway when we make the pathway straight for the Lord to come near in this invasion. We confess and repent of those things, those habits, those harms, those hurts, those stories, those expectations of a different kind that God did not baptize or call into us and are healed and made whole of those so that the light might fill us. So that just like when you walked in here and saw the trees, you knew what season it was. That the folks in our lives who see us sent into the world in the hope and the story of heaven come near see the light breaking in to a world that is so full of darkness. The darkness is not light's equal. It is merely its absence. The darkness cannot overcome the light. It cannot because it is not. And it will not be. And God says in Christ, I'm looking for the substantial, the real, the powerful. Let me fill you with this light so that you can join in this story, this song, and this sharing. This is the calling and purpose of God's people in this moment, in this time, in this culture. That those who fear the darkness has crept too boldly and too broadly to be beaten back, join together, and with the light of hope and love in our hearts, lean together against that darkness. And the darkness will not overcome. And we will bear fruit for a hungry world. Fruit like peace and patience and understanding. Fruit of the songs and the stories. And you know what? It might turn out to be a musical. Oh, but it's so good. It's so good. Because one day, one day it won't be like this. One day, cancer won't be able to steal. One day, lies won't be able to be told. One day, all those forces that pretend to be Lord over our lives will fade to dust and be no more, for they are not, they were not, and they won't be. And all that will be is the one who was, who is, and who is to come, in whom we hope in whom we are expecting, in whom we are not only cleansed of the shadow, but filled with his light. Let's pray. Lord, our hearts ache at the way things are and hope for the way you have promised to renew, redeem, replenish, and remake. Make us agents of that light that all might see, including us. A hope that darkness cannot overcome, a love that hate cannot undo, a truth that lies cannot rot. Give us the life that will never end. In your love and grace, we pray and gather at this table. In Jesus' name, amen.